you would uh, turn in your Bibles back to Daniel. Uh, Daniel 6 will be our passage tonight. If you weren't here a few weeks ago, I think three weeks ago now, uh, I taught through Daniel 5, and uh, I thought it was going to be my only time preaching for a while. And then Pastor Scott said last week, hey, you want to preach again? And I said, sure, I know exactly where to go, Daniel 6, but you're going to have to remember a lot with me because um, we will uh, kind of add on to that message or kind of run at the end of that. Let's pray, though, before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us tonight. I'm not worthy to be up here, Lord. I pray that you would speak your truth. Help keep my lips from error. Let us learn some incredible things about you tonight. May we leave this place as greater worshipers of you. Guide our time, Lord, in this passage. I pray, Lord, that you would help us in this. Help us to remember these truths, not only tonight, not only the rest of this week, but for the rest of our lives, Lord. Help us to love you more. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in the middle of the week to take some time and look at your word. We thank you for giving us your word. We pray that your blessing would be upon us this evening. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So a few weeks ago, we talked about Daniel 5, of course. Um, if you remember... There's a couple big things that happen to Daniel 5. It's uh, where we get the phrase, the writing is on the wall. And we learn from Daniel 5 how the writing is on the wall for all of the enemies of God. We were introduced to the last king of the Chaldean dynasty in Belshazzar. And we saw him quickly progress through a few stages. We saw him go from feasting and being filled with joy to terror and filled with fear, to death in a matter of one night. It's a lot that happened in chapter 5. We saw God right on the wall. Daniel interpreted it, and it was fulfilled that evening. Babylon's sins against God and his people were finally dealt with and returned upon them as the Medes and the Persians took over what seemed to be the impenetrable city of Babylon, if you remember. The Babylonian Empire was officially over. And the Medes and the Persians were the new power of the world. And you can see this transition at the end of chapter 5. So look with me and at just one verse at the end of chapter 5. We see this, verse 31. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So we see a transition of power happening at the end of chapter 5 going in to chapter 6. Now, if you've already looked ahead at some of your headings in chapter 6, 
Uh, chapter 6 is most known for, what do you think? What does your Bible say? Yeah, Daniel and the lion's den. But I want to invite you to do something. I want to invite you to try and look at this chapter with a fresh, clear mind. Because I think there's a temptation when we say we're going to be talking about Daniel in the lion's den for us to almost, in our minds, sigh and say, ah, Daniel in the lion's den, couldn't we have learned something new, something different, something we've never heard before? It's such a basic elementary story, you know, that we teach children often. But I want to encourage you to not think that way. And I would encourage you to not let your familiarity with this story take away from the riches within it. Because it is an incredible story. And I trust that we will get some new things from this chapter as we go through. And I also want you to consider the role of a minor. Because we're going to be minors tonight. Not minor as in younger kids. But an actual minor who mines for gems, for minerals. Consider a miner who goes into the mine for the first time and comes away with loads of gems. You get a lot out of the mine. But does the miner only go in one time? Does he say, whatever I got after my first journey in is all that I can get? No. They go back for more and more and more until they've exhausted all the minerals. Well, let me tell you, first of all, the Bible is a mine that has no end to the gems inside. This is why we go back. We go back for more. And I trust that you know the story of Daniel in the lion's den pretty well. You've probably received some gems from the mine before. But I trust if we go back into the mine of Daniel 6 with eyes afresh... We will come out with more gems than we've ever seen before. And perhaps you've missed the greatest gem of all in Daniel 6. And that's what I'm excited about. So I invite you to look at this chapter with fresh eyes. Are you, to, are you excited to go mining? Because here we go. Whether you're ready or not, we're going. Chapter 6. And we'll start with verse 31 again because it flows directly into chapter 6. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So who is Darius the Mede? Why, uh, some, some might ask, well, Cyrus was the big power of the time with uh, ruling Persia and even over the Medes. Why was Darius the one put in charge? Well, historians tell us that Darius, this is interesting, was either the uncle of Cyrus, the father-in-law of Cyrus, or both. So think through that for a second. In any case, he was related to Cyrus. Okay, that's the point here. And Cyrus was the main ruler of the world basically now. Now that Babylon fell in chapter 5, there was no major threat to him. And he had to rule over all of Persia, including all of these other places that he'd captured. Frankly, he was only one man and he couldn't rule over everywhere at one time. At least in this capacity. So he appoints Darius his relative to rule. This is what we know about Darius. And now that we know a little bit about him, let's move into chapter 6. 
Now, I have eight quick points that move us through the story here, and then we'll get to some application at the end. The first point is this. Daniel is greatly blessed for serving God and the king. We see this in verses 1 through 3. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. We'll pause there for a second before we move to verse 3. So here's the order of, uh, of Darius. He is a wise ruler, in a sense, to know that it's smart to delegate. He has delegated 120 satraps, which when you see that word, uh, just think government officials, some sort of rulers that would oversee the people. And above them were three commissioners or uh, three head honchos. And they were directly under the king, but above the satraps who were above the people. This was the chain of command. Now, Daniel is older at this point. He's been around for a little bit. But he is said to be one of these commissioners. And if you're like me, you might ask the question, well, how in the world did he become a commissioner? I mean, the kingdom just just transferred over. Uh, How would even the, the Medes or the Persians know anything about Daniel? How would he be elevated so quickly? And we know, of course, that God orchestrates all of this for a reason. But I want us to think about this for a second. Do you remember back in chapter 5 what Belshazzar promised to whoever could read the writing on the wall. He promised that he would be given, whoever could read that, that they would be given the third in command of the kingdom. You remember that? That they would be clothed in purple and robes of royalty. Now, we know Daniel, of course, had about as close to zero interest in that as possible. But he interpreted, and remember what happened at the end of chapter 5? Look at this in verse 29 of chapter 5. This was after the interpretation. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Interestingly enough, Belshazzar's last proclamation was to make Daniel a ruling authority. And he's clothed in purple. Now remember, all on this same night, look what happens in verse 30. That same night that he made that proclamation, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. I find this interesting. Because perhaps the Medes and the Persians are uh, they're taking over Babylon. We know this. They've come in secretly by night. They're taking it in one night, the city that could never fall. And they come into this room with all the government officials and the king. They kill the king, Belshazzar, it says, and they see this guy dressed in royal robes. Wouldn't you think he's kind of important then? If you're a new nation? Needless to say, I think that God allowed him to be clothed in these robes so that it would get the attention of these new rulers. And they would begin to hear about who Daniel was, what he did, that he interpreted dreams, that he interpreted the writing on the wall, that this man was above reproach. Now, certainly there would be plenty of other conversations. We don't know all the details about uh, how he came to 
power as one of the commissioners. But I did find that interesting that God orchestrated him to be set apart as Belshazzar's last command. And it might have been the very thing that caught the eyes of the Medes and Persians. So anyway, back to the story. We know that Daniel's given a position of great authority and influence. And let's see what he does with it in verse 3 of chapter 6. It says, then, Dan, then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Now, it says he began to stand out because of an extraordinary spirit. Um, we don't know exactly what that means. I don't think it's necessarily a reference to the Holy Spirit, although it could be, I suppose. I think really what it's trying to convey is that Daniel was different. He had wisdom that other people did not have, and we know that's from the Lord, ultimately. He could understand things. He could interpret things, obviously. And this extraordinary spirit, whatever it was, we know it's given by God, was ultimately what led him to excel in this position. He served God first, but he also served the king. And it's clear in verse 3 that Daniel was good at what he did. He had gained favor in the eyes of Darius, so much so that Darius is about to give him the second in command. This is interesting. He didn't complain or whine about the government ruling over him. And he certainly didn't try to sabotage them by not doing his job for the sake of his freedom. He trusted and served God throughout the whole time of Nebuchadnezzar and other kings. How would he not do so now? And some of us might ask, well, how could Daniel, I mean, he's an exile from Judah. How could he so willingly work for this new nation that is wicked and they don't worship God? Well, if you really want the answer to that question, it's because Jeremiah told them to. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 10 says this. Listen to this. This is Jeremiah. All along the way, the exiles are sent away, you know, and he's exhorting them to obey God. And here is how they would obey God. He says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles. So listen, it's addressed to the exiles. Whom I, the Lord, have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He takes credit for that. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Listen to this. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. In other words, Jeremiah is saying, get comfy. You're going to be there for a little bit. Don't believe any prophet that comes and tells you, now's the time. Let's retake Jerusalem, revolt. He's saying, don't believe those lies. You're going to be there for a while. And while you're there, serve that nation. It's interesting. 
Daniel had obeyed God in this and clearly was granted favor. And the favor of Daniel was immense. Darius, the Mede, is about to give him the position of commissioner of commissioners to elevate him into second in command. Now that, of course, presents the problem and why we continue in the story. Second point, Daniel's favor stirs jealousy and a conspiracy is born. Verses 4 through 5 says, Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. So these other officials, everybody else it sounds like, they're pretty jealous. They sense the favor that Darius is showing to Daniel and they're upset. Now their jealousy leads them to hatred and perhaps that's because Daniel's a Jewish exile. Maybe they didn't like the fact that a Jewish exile from a nation that's been defeated already would be elevated above them. Maybe they didn't like that. Maybe they lusted for the position itself and maybe they were just greedy and wanted power. In any case, their hatred for Daniel led them to act. But the problem was they couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel. They couldn't find anything. We can't even, we we can't find anything that would make him look bad in the eyes of Darius. That's a problem for them. And I think it's actually a fantastic example of what 1 Peter 2 tells all believers to do. Listen to what 1 Peter 2 says. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. In other words, we're commanded to do that. Live righteously so that if another accuses you, they have no leg to stand on. Right? This is what Daniel was doing. They had nothing to accuse him of. And this is why in verse 5 we see they had to manufacture a way to make Daniel look bad. And the only way to do it was to put Daniel's God versus the king. And we proceed, the conspiracy is born. Point three, the conspiracy cunningly deployed, verse six through nine. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom. Listen to that. Do you see that already? They're already lying, first thing. You think they asked Daniel if they could do this? No, but look, they say, All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors, we've all consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. The conspirators here approached the king under the guise of caring for the king. 
They approached the king with the idea that, hey, let's present this idea of a whole month devoted to the glory of the king. They were filled with flattery on their lips. And of course, you know, flattery is a very common way to get someone to do something for you. They didn't care about the king. They just wanted to flatter him so that they could have their ends met. Now, if you're a parent, you probably have uh, seen this before in your home where uh, one of your children come to you and say, oh, wow, mom, you look really beautiful today. Uh, wow, what's, that's a really nice outfit. Or dad, wow, have you been working out? I mean, what can I get you? And, and of course, parents can kind of be suspicious of this and they can say, okay, what exactly do you want? Because you don't normally compliment me like this, right? Don't act like you've never been there. Maybe you've seen your kids do this before. But you can see through it most of the time. Darius can't see through it. He's fallen for this hook, line, and sinker. I mean, think of the, the argument presented to him. King, what about a whole month devoted to you? Wouldn't you like that? Where nobody is allowed to ask anything of anyone else but you? Oh, king, we would love that for you. They are filled with flattery and Darius falls prey to this. And he makes a rash and rushed decision under the pressure of others. And that normally doesn't go well. But the problem is the content of this injunction poses a serious problem for Daniel. Because for Daniel, this would mean he had to be silent in regards to his God. And that wasn't going to work. Point four, when forced to choose, Daniel serves the king of kings. In verse 10, it says this, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. So we see here, Daniel hears the document is signed. And it doesn't sound like he spent much time debating on what he should do. Right? It says he hears it and he entered his house to pray. Uh, there wasn't much delay. He didn't have to spend a night thinking, hmm, what should I do? He said, no, I'm not going to stop praying to my God. I have no problem serving the king, but when it comes to choosing between the king and my God, there is no choice. This is what he does. And he has no shame in it. He continues doing what he has always done, which we see that he prayed in the fashion of on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God with windows open toward Jerusalem. I think that's interesting. He was fervent in prayer. He had eyes towards Jerusalem. Remember, he's in exile. He was taken away as a young man from Judah. And he looks at the homeland. And I think this is meant to show you how Daniel, although in exile, always had his mind and heart back at home. And I think there's something for us to learn there as well. But he was looking to the promise of God that one day the Jews would return home. And I'm sure his prayers were filled with pleas uh, to God saying, help us endure. Help us serve you. And he continued. I mean, he obviously knew he was going to be in trouble. So if he's going to be in trouble, he might as well talk to God. This is what he did. There was no choice. He trusted the one true God, and this made his decision easy. Point five, Daniel and King Darius are both ensnared by the conspiracy. Verse 11 through 15. 
Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. This is already a little fishy. They probably already know Daniel's going to do this. I can picture them kind of all on like a shift, walking by Daniel's house, just waiting for him to start praying. And they know he's going to. And they look, we got him. We found him. He's praying just like we wanted. Let's go tell the king. And I can almost picture them just scurrying away, running to the king, saying, oh, we got him. It's over for Daniel. This is great. Our plan has worked. Verse 12, then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. And notice they bait him into this a little bit. They say, did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. These conspirators set the trap. Daniel fell into the trap willingly, and they immediately reported this, reported this to the king. And you can imagine, um, maybe if you've been in the... Maybe if you've been a boss or a manager of somewhere, if your top employee leaves, it's kind of devastating at times. Uh, the king is just being told that the guy who he's going to make in second command is guilty of this. And we see his reaction in verse 14. Then, as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and he set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. You can see almost a, a going back and forth of the king, of Darius walking back and forth and saying, How can I get out of this? How can I get out of this? Daniel is my best asset in the kingdom. I love Daniel. He works well. He's honest. That's what it says in verse 3. There was, or verse 4, there was no corruption found in him. There was nobody the king could trust more than Daniel. And he's about to lose him. He's thinking, okay, I know I said this, but I'm the king. Can't I, can't I undo it? But if I undo it, then the people in my kingdom will think I'm, I'm not, a, not a good king. They'll think I just let people slide. But how can I do this? And he does this until sunset. He's trying. He doesn't want Daniel to die. And the conspirators are like, hey, enough is enough. You said that it can't be changed, remember? You said that, king. Why aren't you acting? And the king, notice the role reversal. The king has now become subservient to them. They've baited him in. They've ensnared even the king and they get their way because the king, although maybe you might say it's noble that he doesn't want to kill Daniel, he clearly cares more about his reputation than saving Daniel. And we see this in point number six, which is the next verse. The punishment carried out, Daniel is left for dead. Let's read verse 16. 
Then the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. Now at first in the NASB that sounds like a statement of faith saying he is confident that Daniel will be delivered. Well, in a couple verses, you'll see the king's not very confident at all. In fact, the king is panicked, we'll see in just a moment. Uh, if you have the ESV, it translates it a little bit different. May your God deliver you. I think that's more of the sentiment. I think he knows God has the power to deliver him, but he's not certain. This is not a statement of faith on, uh, in the case of Darius here. But we see as we go on what he really thought. Daniel is cast into the lion's den. We see this. And it's worth noting, I guess, um, a lion's den. Uh, what is this? What, uh, was it out in the wild somewhere? Did they just know where lions were? And just, you know, a perfect spot to execute people, throw them in, um, and just have their way? No, it's pretty unlikely. Um, because, one, lions don't really live in caves. And they don't really live in that type of... They're more of animals that are on the prowl. They live out in the plains, primarily. And the other thing is, we'll see in verse 17 here in just a second, there's a big stone that is put over the entrance. Good luck. I don't, I don't want to be the one that the king volunteers to be the guy to roll a stone at the entrance of a random cave in the wild with lions nearby. This is probably more of a controlled environment. And what I mean by that is these lions were probably captured and kept somewhere. We know later when it talks about lowering or raising Daniel out and casting people in, it sounds like it's subterranean uh, under the earth in a sense. There would be a dropping down of somebody or a raising up of somebody. Um, and it was probably more of a lion's pen, if that makes sense than a lion's random cave somewhere. So these lions would be captured, and there is historical precedent, by the way, for lions being captured. Most of the time in this, in this time of the world, um, it was for sport. You would capture a lion, then you would release them, and a mighty warrior would hunt them. It would be like for that type of sport. But in this case, clearly the Medes had done something in the Persians to set up an execution room filled with lions. This is very interesting. But that's why I believe it's more of a lion's pen. But I'm not going to change the wording on you. I'm just trying to give you the idea of more of a, uh, a manufactured area with lions. But needless to say, if, imagine a lion. You probably wouldn't want to encounter one in the wild, right? But at least they're in their natural habitat. They're able to you know, go around and like roam and hunt. But imagine a lion that is penned in a place where they're not normally. It would probably be a very angry lion and a very hungry lion. Angry and hungry make a bad combination. Maybe you're battling that right now. Okay? I encourage you. Do away with that. But anger and hunger is not good. So needless to say, this is a bad situation. But I find it very interesting that Daniel doesn't really say anything. At least that it's recorded. Daniel is silent. He knows, well, I knew what I signed up for. This was the punishment. I, I, you know, I think of Daniel just um, there for a moment, and I think of him. He could have said, oh, king, do you not know how much I've done for you? I've never, ever conspired against you. 
I have only done what is good and right in your kingdom. And you're going to do this to me? Even nothing. We don't even get that. He's about to be thrown in and we don't see him pleading for his life. I find that interesting. He seems content and unfazed and I think it's because he trusts in the Lord. And I don't necessarily think Daniel knew he was going to be delivered. I really don't. I think he was completely content. If this is the end, I've served the Lord. This is the end. But he trusted in his God. And that's what we see. Now, verse 17 is very interesting. We see, uh, let's read this together. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet ring of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. This is interesting as well because I think that the nobles secretly doubted the king. They wanted to make sure the king put a signet ring on it so that the king wouldn't have any funny business and try to rescue Daniel in the middle of the night. In other words, it's just another example of nothing was going to rescue Daniel. Not even the king. None of his friends. Because whoever would, if you transgressed the seal or signet ring of the king, you would have to face the wrath of the king. It's a way of guaranteeing nothing would rescue Daniel. That's what it says, so that nothing would be changed. I find this very fascinating. So Daniel is cast in. The stone is covered up. I can't even imagine what Daniel was feeling because knowing that he's about to be eaten by angry, hungry lions, that would be pretty ominous, even if you trusted in God. But the scene doesn't stay with Daniel. The scene shifts to Darius. Look at verse 18. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting and no entertainment was brought before him and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lion's? And we will see the result of that in a moment. But Darius obviously is distressed all night. He's thinking about this. And he has an element of hope. Maybe, maybe um, his God will save him. But he's panicked all night. All entertainment's removed. All sleep. All food. Doesn't care. He's distressed. He's about to lose Daniel. And he runs and he yells that out. And we see In verse 21, what happens in seventh point is this. Daniel is saved and the conspirators brought to justice. It says, then Daniel spoke to the king. O king, live forever. Can you imagine those being the first words out of your mouth? I know if it was me and my um, sinful humanity. Yeah, I'm alive. Get me out of here. What did you put me in here for the first place? I didn't do anything to you. You know, I would be, I would just naturally be, king, get me out of here, please. And let's talk about this. No, he says, oh, king, live forever. This is the typical greeting, but it's a submissive greeting. It's a, hey, we're fine. My God saved me. 
Look what happened. He explains what happened in verse 22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me. Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also toward you, O king, I've committed no crime. He explains the reason God shut the mouths of the lions and he was innocent. Verse 23. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders to Daniel to be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. There wasn't even a scratch on this man. The king can almost really not believe it. He's looking, he's examining. There's not even a scratch. This is clearly a work of God. And the scene, I mean, he's happy. He gets Daniel back. And he's just seen a work of the Most High God. He's excited. But that excitement is short-lived. His excitement quickly turns to unbridled fury. Look what happens in verse 24. He would be manipulated no longer. His wrath would come forth. The king then gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. The Medes and Persians weren't necessarily known for their mercy, by the way. Justice was served in this capacity, in this time. They would... Punished people incredibly harshly. And it was common in this time for whole families to suffer for the sins of the fathers. And unfortunately, as brutal as this is, that the women and the children suffer as well, it was the result of the sin of these conspirators. The king would show no mercy. The king would not be sheepish or weak any longer. The king is taking back his throne and dealing with them. He is blotting out their names by eliminating their families. It's a harsh sequence and yet brought about by great sin. But notice here the difference in the lion's reactions because there are some people that say, well, Daniel just survived the night because the lions were fed well. Before Daniel went in, the lions clearly had a good you know, meal. They didn't really want to bother Daniel because... Well, they had already eaten. Well, their reaction to the others show a completely different story. In fact, uh, you would imagine, I don't know if they really threw them in or if they lowered them down on something. That's kind of what I more picture, a lowering mechanism so that they could raise Daniel up. But in, in any case, before they got to the ground, they are gone. All of their bones are crushed The lions destroy them. Notice the difference between God's people and God's enemies. One is saved and one is crushed. Final point of this story, and then we'll shift to the application. The living God receives the glory. Verse 25 through 28. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and and men of every language who were living in all the land. May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. 
So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. We don't know if Darius ultimately put his trust in God for salvation in a sense, but Darius spoke truth. He saw what the God of Daniel did and not only said it's okay to worship God, but you must fear and tremble this God because of what I have seen. It's a drastic shift. It's a radical change from him saying, I'm going to be the one worshipped for 30 days to no, you tremble before this God. God orchestrated all these events to result in his fame. And how encouraging would it have been for the Jews to hear this decree? He had just issued a decree where they can't pray to God. Now he says, everyone fear and tremble God. That would have been incredibly encouraging and a work of the Lord. So, why was this chapter written? Why was this chapter recorded for us to read? Because it's a neat story. But if we stop there, we're only walking out with a gem like this size. I want us to walk out with a big bucket of gems. And there's a lot more to this than just what is a neat story. I see three very important reasons, at least three, there's plenty more, but three very important reasons why we are to consider what is written here today. First of all, the narrative of Scripture is progressed. That is a long-winded way of saying this is how God accomplished his plan. We ought to always be looking at the Bible and seeing how this story fits into the whole narrative of Scripture. And what is the whole narrative of Scripture? It's easily summarized in two words, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament looks forward to him. He was plan A all along. This was not plan B because the Israelites couldn't keep the law. It was plan A all along. Jesus says, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in me. The prophets were the ones that spoke about me. This is what he says. God preserved the Jews. You want to know how the narrative has progressed? God preserved the Jews through this. Think about it for a second. Daniel was the one that the, these precepts and these, or these people cared about. They wanted to get rid of him. But imagine if Daniel died. How many more Jews would have died from breaking that law? Right? At least the God-fearing ones who were, to, were going to continue praying to their God, they would have been at great risk. God preserves the Jews, which preserves the bloodline of the Messiah, which preserves the salvation plan all along. You see what I mean? It is a great worshipful thing to do to ask, how does this story progress the narrative of Scripture? Secondly, this is a means by which the Jews gained favor in the land. And they were going to need some favor if they were ever going to go home. Right? And guess what? Shortly after, someone issues a decree for them to go start rebuilding the temple. Cyrus does. You can read more about it in Ezra. We don't have all the time for that. But this was a means by which God allowed the Jews to be favorable in the eyes of this kingdom. 
And there would be plenty of struggles along the way as well, but it's good to ask ourselves, Daniel in the lion's den is not just a story about Daniel, it's zoom out and look at the big picture. God preserves the narrative of Jesus Christ coming and saving sins. Secondly, there is personal application for the believer. It's helpful for us to know. We see a great example of how to live under a government that does not worship God. We see Daniel living out submission to governing authorities until it crosses paths with submitting to God. You see that clearly. We see how a righteous life puts to shame accusations. It's a good thing to ask. If somebody accused you of wickedness, would they have a leg to stand on? Or would they not? We also see how we should follow and serve Jesus no matter the cost. He is our ultimate authority. If anything is pitted against Jesus, we must choose Jesus. Not out of a, oh, I guess I'll choose Jesus. But if I lose Jesus, I lose everything. Right? What is there that you can put up against Jesus that I would rather have? And if there is something you rather have, something is wrong. Something's out of whack. Your priorities are way out of whack. There is nothing worth more than Jesus. Is he worth that to you? Is he worth it for your life? You can consider how Daniel lived as an exile with a constant mind towards his homeland. He lived as an exile looking to Jerusalem. Believers, we are to do the same. Not to Jerusalem on this earth. Oh, but to our home that is not on this earth. That's how we survive the exile of today. We can also see that, yeah, we're maybe not guaranteed to be delivered from our physical enemies, right? Daniel was delivered. The point of Daniel in the lion's den is if you ever encounter a lion, you're immune. No, that's not the point. If you encounter a lion, I encourage you to run. You cannot quote, invoke this story and say, I will be safe. However, and this is what we need to teach our children. I encourage you to do this. Highlight how amazing it is how Daniel was delivered from these lions and how miraculous that is. And then say this. Get their attention. Did you know that we're delivered from something greater than these lions? Did you know that? And they'll say, what? Oh, let me tell you about Jesus. Because Jesus delivers us from all of our enemies. And he delivers us from one who is said to be prowling around like a lion. He delivers us from Satan. He delivers us from sin. He delivers us from the enemies of God. He delivers us from death. And like lions, you can consider the teeth. Consider the teeth and ill intent of all of the enemies of God. All of your enemies... And consider that God shuts their mouths. Daniel was sent into the lion's den. The lions had their mouths shut. They couldn't harm him. Yeah, you and me are probably going to die one day. But you know what? Satan, when he tries to sift us as wheat, as he did with Peter, God says, shut your mouth. You will not harm my children. When God's enemies rise up against you, whether on this earth or in the future, God says, you can't harm them. You have no ability 
to even scratch my children. Oh yeah, by the way, death, such a big bad enemy, my children won't taste it. Shut your mouth. These are menacing foes that have never previously been defeated until Jesus Christ. Jesus defeated them for us and has shut their mouths. He has rendered them powerless. This is why the psalmist can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you're with me. You shut the mouths of lions. You shut the mouth of death and sin and Satan and all of my enemies. Romans 8, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 6 through 39 says, This is the will of him who has sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but I raise it up. If you are a believer in God, God has shut the mouths of all of your enemies. No power can thwart the intention and plan of the Almighty And let us praise his name. But there is a final gem that I want us to consider. And this is where we will close. To consider seeing Jesus in the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel as a type of Christ who is foreshadowing the Messiah to come. Consider the beautiful picture as we close here. Jesus, like Daniel, submitted to earthly authorities and did not try to bring an uprising against them. Notice, many people hated Daniel for living righteously. Many people hated Jesus for living righteously. The grounds of the conspiracy for Daniel was not focused on evil deeds because they couldn't find anything wrong. He was innocent. And likewise, the grounds for the conspiracy against Jesus was against nothing he's done sinfully. The conspirators in this story feigned loyalty to the king. When in reality, all they wanted was their own selfish desires. Doesn't that remind you of the Jews who brought Jesus to Pilate? They feigned loyalty to to Pilate and said, we have no king but Caesar. So that they could have their ends met. We see a king in Darius who very much reminds me of Pilate. Who was reluctant to kill an innocent man and yet committed evil out of the fear of man. They both were not innocent in this. Jesus never wavered in serving the Lord, even when faced with the threat of death as Daniel did. Now, Daniel didn't die. Jesus did. Daniel seemed to not utter a word as he was sent into the lion's den to certain doom where he knew he was innocent Doesn't that remind you of Isaiah 53, 7, which says this? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. You want to talk about somebody who could have easily said, stop what you're doing, I'm innocent. Jesus was the one. You want to talk about somebody who could have called down legions of angels to stop it? He could have, and he sat there silently and accepted the punishment for our sins. Consider this. A stone, I think this is pretty cool. A stone was placed in front of the opening and sealed with the signet ring of the rulers of Daniel. And we read in Matthew 27, 66, 
this after Jesus was crucified. It says this, And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone. Very similar, right? No one was able to mess with what was inside. Only an act of God could deliver. And Jesus comes bursting out of the tomb. Daniel is raised from his supposed grave and in a sense brought back to life. Certain death, which no man had ever survived before, had been defeated and overcome. In the same way, Jesus rose from the grave in a way that no one has ever done and no one could ever do. Daniel's rising from the den very much saved a lot of people. He was the representative of the Jews And many were saved because of that. How many have been saved because Jesus rose from the grave? And guess what? God receives all the glory in both of these cases. Jesus is the way better Daniel. The way better Daniel. Because Daniel, sure he had faith. But he couldn't raise himself from the dead. God had to stop the mouths. Sure, he was a representative raised... And it saved Jews' lives. But Jesus raised himself and defeated sin. Oh, believer, there's so much to learn from and be reminded of. And when you read this story, don't just think of the lions and Daniel. Think of Jesus. Tell your children about Jesus. Show them that it's much bigger. Yeah, Daniel and the lion's den is awesome, but let me tell you about somebody who's greater. It should never stop at the lions. It should always end with the lion of Judah. And it's my prayer that you walk away with a heart set on worshiping Christ because the Bible is all about Jesus and we see this even in this Old Testament story. So I hope you've enjoyed your trip into the mine. We got a little dirty, but I hope you've come out with quite a few gems. May God bless you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us the opportunity to revisit, yes, a common story, but one that is all the more remarkable as we consider your son. All of scripture centers around who you are. We are hopeless without Jesus Christ. Daniel could not save us. No saint of old could save us because they too were sinners. Only you could save us. And you indeed have saved us from an enemy so much greater than a lion. An enemy that no one could ever defeat. But you did on the cross. Let us remember that. Let us worship you tonight. Let us teach our children this. Let us teach our family this and our friends. May we have the praise of God ever present on our lips. Pray your blessing upon everyone in this place tonight. It's in your name we pray.